So today's reading from James is found on 587 in your blue Bibles in front of you, if you have that there. You're going to hear from God's Word from James, chapter 3, from verses 13 through 18 today. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works for the meekness of wisdom, in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false in the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brad. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much that you have given us your word. And we ask, just as we have read, may you give us wisdom from above as we hear, as we respond. Lord, give us hearts of meekness before you, before what you have uh, spoken. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is wisdom? And how do you get it? What do you think of when you think of someone who is wise? What comes to mind? What picture do you conjure up? Do you think of somebody with grey hair? Or perhaps do you think of somebody who is really smart? Sorry, let me just fix this. Or perhaps you think of a, uh, a Buddhist monk. In some cultures, uh, monkeys are considered to be wise. Perhaps that comes to mind. Maybe you think of someone in your life, a mentor or a grandparent, somebody who guided you when you were going through a difficult time or when you needed help making a really important decision. When we think of wisdom, more often than not, what we think of, what we consider, is good advice or good knowledge. Now, that's not a terrible definition, but James tells us that there is more to wisdom than that. What we see in this passage is that wisdom from above is as much about its purpose and about what it produces as it is about the actual content. For what purpose do you seek wisdom? Why? Is it so that others will consider you to be wise and maybe one day come to you for help and guidance and direction as you did to others? Is it so that you can look back on your life and say with a real sense of satisfaction, ah, I had a, I had a good life. I did well. In our passage, James makes it clear that there are two very different kinds of wisdom. Worldly wisdom, which is not wisdom at all, and wisdom from above, wisdom that comes from God. The difference lies not just in wisdom's content, but what wisdom is for. And so James contrasts the difference between worldly wisdom and word-y wisdom. And those will be my two points this morning. Let's have the Word open, our, our Bibles, notepads, hearts, minds ready to hear God's wisdom this morning. Let's begin with point number one, worldly wisdom. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, James uh, gave a significant warning for those uh, who desire to be teachers. He warned about those who cannot control their tongue and who like to make great boasts. And even though he broadened out the application to include uh, everybody and not just teachers, it was clear that he, what he was saying applied more acutely to those who teach. 
those who are, like in my position, those who are uh, pastors and elders in our church. And it seems like in this passage, that, can, that trend continues. What we see is James picking up again on themes that he has already spoken about so far and going deeper into them. He has, after all, uh, sp- already spoken about receiving wisdom and also receiving gifts from, from above, from our Heavenly Father to anybody who asks in chapter 1, as well as talking about faith that produces works in chapter 2. And we see both of those present in this passage. In this first point... I'm going to focus on verses 14 to 16, and in my second point, verses 13, 17, and 18. But I will begin reading in this passage at verse 13. Let's do that now. Follow along with me. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show uh, his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. James opens in this passage by asking a rhetorical question, which leads to his opening point. True wisdom is shown by good conduct and meekness. And James's concern in this passage, as we'll continue to see, is defining what exactly is wisdom that comes down from above. We'll look at what that positively means in point two. But after introducing the idea in verse 13, James quickly moves to define what godly wisdom is not in the next three verses. In these next verses, we'll see what worldly wisdom looks like. I look at the two key traits of a heart that has worldly wisdom in verse 14. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. They are so central to James's argument that he mentions them again in verse 16. These are motivators that seek personal gain and are driven by a selfish desire. And James gives an instruction to go along with his description. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, given that he starts this sentence with if, if you have... You might think that the second half, this instruction, only applies to those who have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. You might think to yourself, well, if I don't have those two things, then I don't have to worry about not boasting and being, um, being false to the truth. Now, it's, it's not likely that that's what he means, but even if it was, we know from the rest of Scripture that being dishonest and boasting are sinful. They are things we ought to avoid and seek to avoid. They are all over Scripture, such as in Deuteronomy 5.20 and Psalm 5.5, two examples of those things. And so James is making it clear that these two indicators of the heart are not good. And he follows up with two instructions that are another call to be careful with our words. Once again, those who teach the Word and who lead the church must pay careful attention here. And church, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's another reminder of what to look for in considering whom to appoint as elders. Do they not only take care about what they teach, but what are their motives? Selfish ambition leads to carelessness with the word, which leads to being false to the truth. So it is with all of us. Striving for your own will over God's will will cause you to twist and to break His truth. Make no mistake. Your selfish desires will make you want to disbelieve. Brothers and sisters, be on your guard. Verse 14 is telling you what he's about to say next in verse 15. Boasting and being dishonest and having bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts is not godly wisdom. Let's read verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. What James means by the wisdom that comes from down from above is wisdom from God. And even though we might uh, figure that out intuitively, because uh, most of us would naturally think of you know, God as 
being up there somewhere. We know for sure that this is what he means because, as I mentioned before, James has already used this language in this way in chapter 1, particularly in verses 5 and 17. It's clear that this is what God is, uh, James is referring to. And so he draws a very clear distinct contrast here between the wisdom that comes from God and the wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. They are polar opposite things. Those three words there that he uses to describe them are very helpful to us. If we want to know what godly wisdom is not, these three words give us an idea of what James means. Now again, you can probably tell from the context and the way we use these words today that James is not using them as though they are good things. You can tell that they are negative. But again, a survey of Scripture also confirms that this is the case. So, for example, Philippians 3, verses 18 to 19, make it very clear that the word earthly certainly can have a negative meaning. Enemies of the cross are the ones who set their minds on earthly things. And Paul uh, describes them uh, as those who have their minds down here, concerned only about these things. Unspiritual, it always has a negative meaning in Scripture. The underlying Greek word psychikos is sometimes translated as natural, like in 1 Corinthians 2.14, or even worldly in Jude 19. Again, showing that what we are referring to here is not a good thing. And often when it, this word is used, it is contrasted with what is spiritual and what is good. Yet the picture, it's the opposite of pursuing good and godly and spiritual things. And finally, demonic refers to Satan and his demons in hell, the enemies of God. James himself has already used the term earlier in the book, in chapter 2, verse 19, referring to spiritual beings who are against God. And so James is saying in this verse, this is the wisdom that is not from God. This is worldly wisdom. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Do you notice how in these three words, James describes worldly wisdom as the exact opposite of God's wisdom? Worldly wisdom comes from earth. It originates from down here. God's wisdom comes from above. It is heavenly. Worldly wisdom is unspiritual. It is not concerned about the things of the Holy Spirit, nor is it born of the Spirit. It is natural. It is the kind of wisdom that appeals to our natural instincts and our natural thinking. God's wisdom is spiritual. It is all about the things of His Holy Spirit, things that can be discerned when a person has been born of the Spirit, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2. And worldly wisdom is demonic. In the same way that the tongue is set on fire by hell, worldly wisdom finds its origin in the same place as the demons. It does not come from God. It opposes God. It seeks personal glory over His glory. God's wisdom is His. It does not come from His enemies or from those who oppose Him. Well, James's description of worldly wisdom is helpful to identify what it is. It's the kind of information that's helpful in the same way that knowing what a melanoma is is helpful. But that information is not going to be helpful to you if you don't know how to identify it on yourself. We need to be able to recognize it on our skin and not just in the textbook. So how can we identify worldly wisdom in our own lives? One way that it shows up very clearly is when we have knowledge or when we seek knowledge that serves our own purposes and our own ends rather than God's. That's the whole point of James talking about those who are, have bitter jealousy and have selfish ambition. They use and take that knowledge 
to serve their own purposes. And you know what? You can do this even with biblical knowledge. To take scripture and then apply it for your own purposes, that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So when you put the face of former President Donald Trump on a billboard with the words of Isaiah 9-6 and have Romans 8-17 in the corner implying that he is the one who fulfills this verse, that is worldly wisdom. Or when you talk about the US armed forces and their willingness to serve their country and then quote Isaiah 6-8 to make it sound like it has biblical backing as Joe Biden did earlier this year, that is worldly wisdom. We might scoff at such blatant examples of misuse of the Bible. But do you use Scripture for selfish ambition? Do you take the wisdom of God, his knowledge, and try to bend it to suit your own purposes? Because if you do, that is not God's wisdom. That is not the wisdom that comes from above. Wisdom from above is God's truth applied for God's purposes, for His glory. And if you take that truth and bend it, then you turn it into worldly wisdom. To give you some more examples closer to home and closer to our text in James, you could take the, His teaching that faith without works is dead, which we saw a few weeks ago, and twist it to mean that works are a necessary component of faith. Or you could take what James is about to say, which we'll see next week, Lord willing, provided there's no cyclone or something else that will prevent us from meeting. In verse 2 of chapter 4, that you do not have because you do not ask, and then you turn that into a blank check for every desire that you want in life, whether it's good or bad. There were many times in my life that I heard that verse used in that way. Do you see what happens in this recasting of God's truth into worldly wisdom? The purpose for which God gave his truth and the knowledge and the principles for living has had its coordinates changed from God to human beings. Its trajectory, this knowledge which is supposed to be sending you towards God, has been messed with. It's been tampered with. And instead of aiming for heaven... It is now aiming for earth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Like a NASA rocket that was headed for the moon, but is now crashing into the Atlantic Ocean. Worldly wisdom makes all truth, knowledge, wherever it is found, about us. And in so doing, it turns that truth into false truth. You can identify it when you begin looking for and find in God's Word an application of it that is all about your own ambition. The things that you want, the things that you are striving for that are different to God's will. You can identify it when the, the double-edged sword of God's word just glances off your heart like steel on a rock instead of piercing it and separating joints and marrow. You can identify it when jealousy and selfish ambition have so clouded your vision that you can't even see how your life is supposed to be about God. And of course, you can identify it because it shows up in your life as sin. Let's read verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
that jealousy and selfish ambition which are at the core of worldly wisdom produce the fruit of disorder and every vile practice. God is a God who brings order out of chaos. And so we see here how worldly wisdom takes you in the opposite direction from order to chaos and greater chaos. Do you notice how throughout these verses what James is calling earthly, unspiritual, and demonic is that which is produces the very opposite of godliness. It produces that which is the very opposite of what God desires. And there is no point learning important truths and studying God's word if all it is doing is increasing your jealousy and your selfish ambition and showing up in disorder and sinful actions. Remember the likely context that James is targeting here. Those who aspire to be teachers and who probably have spent some time studying the word and yet have not grown in godly character at all, but in fact have gone in the opposite direction. This is one of the reasons why it kind of bugs me when people talk about theology as though it is an entirely intellectual exercise. Now, I understand why we might want to use that term in that way. You know, some people like to say theology is the queen of the sciences and that kind of thing. I get that. But I think one of the unhelpful consequences of doing that is that we as Christians can start to have the conversation, can start to talk about knowledge of God as though our faith is divided into components where we have theory and practice and that you can have more of one and less of the other and that's okay. That's not how God has created us. Why else do you think he commands in the Old Testament and Jesus himself echoes the fact that we are to love him with all heart, with all soul, with all mind, with all strength? Why else do you think Paul can talk about in Romans 12, the transformation of ourselves through the renewing of our minds? As we just sung. We can so easily fall into either ditch of this false dichotomy. As Christians, some of us think that we don't need to engage our minds very much in faith. Or that we, we only have to do very little of it. You know, I'll, I'll leave the rest of that to the bookworms, we say. I like to engage God with my heart and with my spirit and I, and I want to feel God, you know. Others think that the pursuit and study of theology in and of itself is, is enough to consider oneself to be Spiritual. And this is why those who have historically prized themselves on a deep faith in this way that takes this shape, like those mostly in the Reformed camp, have often ended up with a dry orthodoxy that lacks the kind of spirituality that should be so evidently seen in the way that we live. Brothers and sisters, neither of these extremes Display the wisdom that comes down from above. Both of them, in their own ways, are birthed from and continue in selfish ambition. Both seek wisdom on their own terms and for their own ends. If you find yourself in one of those camps... Let me urge you to ask God to help you bring all of your heart, soul, and mind and strength together in love for and in worship of Him. But I suspect that for the majority of us, we would agree with what I just said and largely seek to avoid both of those extremes. So how do you identify in your own life when you're seeking worldly wisdom? Well, the first helpful diagnostic is to think about what you do and why. Why are you in the job or in the role that you are doing right now? Is it just for the money? Is it because you want to gain skills and experience? There's a whole host of reasons why. But are you able to connect the dots between your day-to-day existence and the way you spend your hours ultimately and finally to the glory of God? Can you draw a line from what you do down here to what it means for up there? 
Jonathan Edwards' life resolutions, one of which I mentioned last time we churched a couple of weeks ago, is helpful here again. Number 23 says, Resolved frequently to take some deliberate action which seems most unlikely to be done for the glory of God and trace it back to the original intention, designs, and and ends of it. And if I find it not to be for God's glory, to repute it as a breach of the fourth resolution. And his fourth resolution was to do everything for the glory of God, basically. Do you see what he's saying here? I want to be able to see, even if something seems like it's, it's, it's not for the glory of God, even something as mundane as, you know, having meals or, or doing work on my car or, or wash bathing my kids in the bath. He says, I want to be able to trace that all to living my life for the glory of God. The series of steps from here to heaven... Well, it's going to look different for all of us. We all live different lives. We're all in different places. God has, has put us in different things. And, you know, for some of us, it's going to be easier in some things to do more than others. You know, it's pretty plain. It's, it's fairly easy to connect caring for the poor or gathering regularly with the church or reading your Bible with how that connects to glorifying God. But it is harder to connect, I don't know, doing research for your next purchase or spending ages, I don't know, whatever. You know what I'm saying. Disciplining your child for the hundredth time even though they just refuse to listen. Why do I bother? It can be difficult to figure out how your actions and your work, uh, uh, the things you do each day connect with living for the glory of God. But brothers and sisters, this work must be done. If you can't find even just a smidge of a connection between your actions and glorifying God, then you are living for yourself. You ought to, as Jonathan Edwards says, repute it and cease. And this is not just a set and forget exercise. We don't say, oh, yeah, I've got it. Yeah, that's, I'm doing that for God. Great. Tick. No, this is, this is something we must be continually assessing our hearts and our actions and our lives in. Because the temptation of sin and self and Satan are always lurking. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become anxious about every minor little detail. Oh, no, you know, you go home and you're sitting on the toilet and thinking, how does this glorify God? JR's, you know. I'm not suggesting we need to do that, but, but ask the question of yourself with me. How often do you remind yourself of the reason why you do the things you do? How easily do you just turn on autopilot and think, yeah, we're good? Do you regularly repent of your pride, of your selfish ambition? And do you meekly surrender to God in His wisdom? Do you ask God to keep shaping your heart so that you are not driven by bitter jealousy? The wisdom from above is not just about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. It's about what it produces in your life. And that brings us to point two. Wordy, also known as godly wisdom. Now by wordy, as you may have figured out, wisdom, what I mean is wisdom that comes from God's word. And I'll elaborate that as we go. But what I basically mean is that it is wisdom from above, from God. Having seen how James defines what wisdom from God is not, let's now look at what he has to say about what it is. Let's go back to verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What are the two components that you notice there, which are evidence of the one who is wise and understanding? Good conduct shown in works, coming from the meekness of wisdom. Right from the beginning of this passage, James shows us that wisdom and how we live are tied together. 
Wisdom that does not produce works is useless. Sound familiar? Faith without works is dead. And notice that key word there, meekness. James has already used it in chapter 1 when he talked about receiving the implanted word with meekness. There's a bit of a theme in how James envisages the Christian faith, isn't there? And for good reason. James, uh, Jesus also emphasizes meekness, like he does in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.5. Both Jesus and James, and pretty much the rest of the New Testament, mind you, highlight the importance of coming to God in meekness. Jesus himself embodied meekness. He humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, you follow your Lord and Savior in his meekness. Now remember, meekness is not the same as weakness. Meekness is not, it's not about trying to be weaker or trying to drag yourself down as far as you can. No, meekness is, is, is much closer to humility. It is about not inflating yourself or thinking of yourself as the most important person alive. You can see how that's the opposite of those James is addressing. We can follow John the Baptist's lead in this when he says in John 3.30, He must increase, I must decrease. When James says, in the meekness of wisdom, those things, they qualify one another. Wisdom is meek. It is humble. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because it comes, if, it, if it comes from God, then the only way to get it is by receiving it from Him. And that's consistent with the rest of the Bible. As we read earlier, Proverbs 2, verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom, from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. If we consider wisdom to be something that comes down from above, as James says, if it is something that does not come from us by simply observing the world and figuring out what works, but instead comes from God, then of course we seek to gain it by humbling ourselves and coming before God with open hands. If wisdom was water pouring out of a tap, then you wouldn't sit back and observe it and, then, and thinking you, know, you could quench your thirst by just studying the tap and the water. No, you would, you would get underneath it and you would start drinking it in, mouthful after mouthful. Wisdom from above is humbly received in meekness by those below. That is the attitude with which we come to God in seeking His wisdom. Does that describe you? Is that the way that you approach God's Word? As you meditate on our meek Lord, the one who submitted His will to the Father, does that produce in you the same submission and humility? We seek God's wisdom in meekness. And in so doing, God's wisdom produces fruit in our lives. Let's read how James continues in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What does God's wisdom look like? It looks like a life that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. It looks like a life that continues to walk in step with the Spirit. Perhaps James knew about the content of Paul's famous verses in Galatians 5, 23 But it's unsurprising to see that what James is referring to, the way he describes the wisdom of God has similarities with the fruit of the Spirit. 
But even if James didn't know of Paul teaching on this, it's unsurprising that what he expects godly wisdom to look like is the same as what Paul expects the Spirit-filled life to look like. And James's point is not that the wisdom from God and the fruit of the Spirit are one and the same thing. But there is obviously a connection between those two things. When someone receives God's wisdom and lives in accordance with it, it looks the same as somebody who is walking with the Holy Spirit. And that's because wisdom is not just knowledge. Godly wisdom produces a God-glorifying life, a life lived well for His purposes, a life lived in the fullness of knowing Christ. And that life has certain traits. James shows that the first defining trait of wisdom from above is what? Purity. It is first pure. And even though this word, especially in the Pentateuch, has the sense of ritual and ceremonial purity, it is also used in the New Testament to refer to that which is morally pure. And this makes sense. After all, if God is perfectly pure, then He is pure in every way. And so God's wisdom has moral implications for us in our lives. And just look at the rest of that list. What do you notice about it? Well, the first thing I'll point out, uh, which you can't see in English, is that the first three after pure in the original Greek all begin with an epsilon or the letter E. Uh, And I point that out to simply say that if James can use alliteration to teach and help you remember good things, then who am I to not follow his lead? But the more important thing to point out is that you'll notice that all of these traits seem to speak to the temperament and the character of a person. Again, if James is here particularly highlighting what the attributes of a teacher should be, then it's unsurprising that we also find traits that are, uh, that are very similar and traits that are almost entirely about temperament and character. In those famous passages, the well-known passages about what qualifies a man to be a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And of course, as is the case with these lists as well, even though teachers might be James's more specific target audience, these are attributes that all of us as Christians are called to grow in. Do you want to receive and live by God's wisdom? Then ask yourself the question, What is your temperament like? Do you seek and make peace? The old piecewise labels of peace breaking and peace faking are helpful ways of thinking about this. The most obvious example of a person who doesn't seek peace is or what would come to mind for most of us is a peace breaker. Someone who just charges into a situation and doesn't care about the damage that they do, right? But a peace faker is just as guilty of not being peaceable. Because simply avoiding conflict is false peace. Neither are truly peaceable. Being peaceable means being willing to lay down your rights when they are matters that don't compromise truth and seeking to find agreement in God's truth in a peaceable and gentle manner as much as you can. Once again, this is so crucial, especially for one who teaches the Word. It is our responsibility as pastors to ensure that we not only love the Word and love the truth and seek to be faithful to it, but to also have the right temperament. We cannot be peace fakers or peace breakers. And you'll notice the rest of James's list, aside from being good standalone traits, all of them help a person to be peaceable. Gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Allow me to zoom in on being open to reason, which I think can be easily misunderstood. What comes to mind for you when you hear that? Somebody who is open to reason. Personally, I, I think of the opposite. I think of someone who isn't open to reason, someone who stubbornly refuses to budge no matter what evidence is presented to them. Easy to do these days because the internet will feed you everything. It is undiscerning. But you see, it makes sense that meek wisdom produces openness to wisdom, uh, to reason. I think what James is getting at here is the importance for Christians, and again, more specifically teachers of the word, to be always ready and always willing to have our life and theology shaped and reshaped by Scripture. After all, as Christians, where, where do we reason from? Ultimately, the word. Of course, God's revealed wisdom. And this is the essence of the oft-repeated but little understood phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which in Latin uh, is the church reformed, always reforming. You can easily over-exaggerate both parts of that phrase unhelpfully. It's easy to think that the church has done its reforming and there's no need to do any more. It's also easy to think that always reforming means only looking forward and not caring about what's behind. But both extremes miss the heart of the phrase. The point is that the church has been reformed by the truths of Scripture and ought to be continually reformed by it. The truths that have already reformed it, which many churches hold to, have a solid track record. That's why the vast majority of Presbyterian and Reformed churches today still hold to the Westminster Confession, which was written in 1646. And many Dutch Reformed churches hold to the Belgian Confession, which was published in 1561. Our own church's statement of faith is roughly based on the New Hampshire Confession, which was written in 1853, and that itself is a shorter version of the Second London Baptist Confession, which was written in 1689. I hope you've memorized all those dates. But for each of these churches, all of them who hold to these confessions, if they hold to them properly, all of them do so only as far as the confession accurately represents the teaching of Scripture. And that's why they say these things in them. Belgian Confession, Article 7. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons and councils, decrees and statutes of equal value with the truth of God. Since the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and more vain than vanity itself. You pick up even at the end there, selfish ambition. or in the uh, Baptist Confessional and the Westminster, which are basically the same here at this point. The Supreme Judge, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Do you hear what they're saying? Even this confession that we've written, it is subject to the authority of the Holy Spirit speaking through Scripture. And so if anything in the confession doesn't align with Scripture, you go with Scripture every time. This is what it means to be open to reason. It is applied meekness. And to borrow from what I said earlier, that doesn't mean that you should have weaker convictions or thoughts about Scripture. It doesn't mean that the less things you're sure about, the more open to reason you are. No, being open to reason means always submitting to God in His Word and always seeking to find truth according to what the Bible says. 
So it is the height of arrogance to assume that your confession contains everything you need to know or to think that it is the perfect and complete summary of all the Bible teaches. But it is also the height of arrogance to think that you can arrive at all of the Bible's wonderful treasures just by yourself. God has placed you in an interpretative community so that you may understand and apply his word better and more faithfully. And that community includes your brothers and sisters from centuries past. Do you have that kind of openness? Do you seek God's wisdom with that kind of meekness? Because that openness to reason and that submission to Scripture leads to greater peace, not less. Things as they should be, as God intended. This is something we as elders here at Emmaus Road constantly strive for. Even though we are confident in our current statement of faith, we want to ensure that we are always reforming. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our desire is that as a church, we would continue to do this work and that you would continue to spur us on in it. If there are things that we believe or practice that are out of line with Scripture, then we want you to bring those to our attention. I praise God that that happens already in our church. I had a conversation like that this week. And it's not just in the things that we teach, but also in the way that we teach them, in the temperament, in the character that we have. I'm thankful for every single time that you want to bring things to us that you think that we can grow in faithfulness to the word too. Brothers and sisters, pray for one another in this. Pray for your elders and pray for each other. Because we're not always going to get this right. We're not always going to get it right in the content or in the way that we actually talk about it. Our sin so often rises to the surface and we're not always going to have these conversations in peaceable and gentle ways. Even just this morning I was reminded of how I need to continue to be sanctified in that. But may we get under the spout of God's wisdom with open hands and open hearts ready to increase in purity and in peaceableness. Brothers and sisters, as you look at this list, where do you need to grow in godly wisdom? Does your knowledge of God make you more harsh and impatient? Does it make you more open to reason and full of mercy or more immovable and less charitable? God's wisdom works in our hearts this way to produce these things. We become more impartial and sincere because we care less about ourselves and our wants. That is meekness. And it's unsurprising that the meekness of wisdom produces peace. James homes in on that trait in verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who peaceably make peace sow a harvest of righteousness for themselves and for others. Righteousness, as James has used it before in chapter 1, refers to our works of righteousness, our increasing godliness and obedience in Him. As for peace, I've hinted at this already, but remember the Jewish background of this term, which would be ringing in James and his readers' ears, that Hebrew word shalom. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's not just sweet silence. But it is the way all things should be. The biblical idea of peace is a sense of wholeness and completeness found in things being the way that God intended. 
This is why peace faking specifically doesn't work in Christianity. Because peace faking is not pursuing wholeness, completeness in God. And that's why the traits that James mentioned in verse 17, they achieve more than just a lack of conflict. And I think that's why James can so easily connect righteousness and peace together. Doing the right thing produces the world that God intended. Well, I think he can do that because also the Bible connects them rather regularly. Isaiah 32, 17 is another example. James is not aiming for a church where everyone sweeps everything under the rug and nothing of any substance is debated or discussed. Gentibly and peaceably, of course. No, the wisdom from above produces peace and righteousness. Both flow from the wisdom of God. Both flow from the wisdom that comes down from above. And so if your definition of both of those things cannot coexist, then you're understanding at least one of them the wrong way. If you think that biblical peace can be achieved by sidestepping God's calls and commands to righteousness or minimizing them in such a way that they don't matter, then that is no longer God's peace that you are talking about. That is earthly unspiritual, demonic, so-called wisdom. I'm aware that we all have different tendencies in this. Some of us, out of fear and dislike of conflict, we minimize the necessity or significance of things that God makes clear in His Word. In the name of so-called peace, we leave behind the purity of God's wisdom. Others of us thinking that being right is of utmost importance. We forget about this entire list in verse 17. And we think, uh, you know, that just being right is all that matters. And we forget about the gentleness and the meekness of our own Savior. If anything, as we've just seen in verse 18, James wants to highlight even more the importance of the peace that God's wisdom produces in your life, more than its rightness. But when we ask the Lord to give us wisdom, it is not just knowledge, it is righteousness and peace. It is not just words and ideas and concepts, but fruit and holiness and sanctification. And he doesn't give it to us by simply zapping our minds with it. He gives it to us by sending us wisdom himself. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 to 24... That as Christians, we preach Christ crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, wisdom does not come to us by simply reading books or observing the world. It comes to us in Jesus. In wisdom himself. That might be confusing to you especially if you aren't a Christian. If the picture of wisdom you've had in your mind has always been just knowledge that helps you live a good and satisfying life, then it might sound strange to you that the way to receive godly wisdom is by receiving a person. But that is exactly the picture the Bible gives us. James said earlier that wisdom doesn't come from above. Sorry, wisdom, so-called wisdom, that doesn't come from above, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And the Bible describes all of us as people who naturally love and live by such wisdom. That is our default speed. And we all know that, don't we? The things that James describes as worldly wisdom, they are things that we so readily identify in our own lives. 
We don't naturally live for God. Can you say truly that your entire life you have in an unbroken streak gotten up and felt absolutely magnificent and ready to live for the glory of God? I mean, if you have, that's impressive. But you know that, don't you? You know that we're always looking around, trying to keep up with the Joneses, caring more about what it is that we're missing out on, rather than seeking complete contentment in God. Hearts such as ours require transformation, and they require ongoing change. And the Bible tells us that such transformation comes only when we receive the wisdom from heaven. As Paul would put it later on in that chapter, because of him you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Receiving the wisdom of God means first receiving Christ. And receiving Christ means receiving Him as Lord and Savior. It means coming to Him in humility and in meekness, recognizing your own sin, recognizing that you cannot save yourself, recognizing your need for redemption. It means turning away from that sin and trusting in Christ. It means recognizing that wisdom comes not from being smarter than everyone else or having lived a more self-satisfying life but from recognizing that godly wisdom is given as a gift to those who turn and trust in Jesus and who place him first. Friends, if you desire the wisdom from above, if you seek to see the fruit of that in your life, turn to Jesus, the wisdom of God. And if you are here and you're not a Christian today, Let me urge you, do that today. I would love to talk to you about that afterwards. It is as you do that that it becomes clear why we are humbled. It becomes clear why God's wisdom is received with meekness. Because we recognize that we receive all things from Him, that it is not a work of our own but a gift of His grace. As Paul would finish that sentence, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wisdom from above boasts not in things below, but in Him who is from above. So what is wisdom? And how do you get it? It is the knowledge and life and fruit of godly living that comes from knowing Jesus. It is the peace and righteousness that flow from following the prince of peace and righteousness. Isaiah 9.6 is about him. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Will you Come to him in meekness, seeking his wisdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts long for the wisdom from above. And yet we recognize that more often than not, our natural selves live by earthly wisdom. 
And so, Father, in your mercy, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, may you continue to outwork your wisdom in our lives by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.